0: Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, very happy to be joining you this, uh, this still bright Friday evening. Thanks, change. Temperatures across Britain have fallen below zero, but if you turned on your heating this morning, I've got some bad news for you. It will have cost you on average 54% more than it did yesterday. That's because the long-trailed energy price hike has today come into effect. The hike is driven by an increase in gas prices that followed the end of lockdowns, and it's been intensified by the war in Ukraine. But it's hitting Brits particularly hard because, unlike in other countries, our government has done barely anything to soften the pain. That's led Labour to call the Tories' efforts pathetic.
1: You know, the government really needed to step up in that spring statement last week. Um, They failed to do so, and their response is, frankly, pathetic on a very, very difficult day for millions and millions of people. Energy bills going up for more than we've ever seen on record. Um, You know, people are really struggling, and I just don't think the government gets it.
0: But the consequences of the price hike will go well beyond politics. A single mother named Zara called into LBC and explained to James O'Brien how the cost of living crisis is already affecting her family. Take your time. There's
2: I finished no the boiler off a long time ago, and we we, we use hot water bottles. Um, I've got jumpers on the children. My mum's knitted socks. I've got a condition where I can't regulate my own body heat, right. and I didn't even want to come on, gym because well, you don't have to. We don't have to do I, this Hey hey, hey hey take your time do you, do
1: you want do you want me to just jibber jabber for a couple of minutes while you but, um, get your breath
2: what i'm trying to say is yes. I, I work and they say work is supposed to pay and you know i'm on tax credits with my children and um, I, my income seems to go down to the bills
1: you're doing it's everything right you're tax. doing everything right and it feels like you're going backwards
2: like I was on single's adult my council tax, yes. and then uh, my son's in sixth form, one of the children. As soon as he turned eighteen, they said, "Right, you pay full council tax." It's, it just the system just doesn't. I don't think they understand. They have got no. Uh, they do not have a clue. Even if you're working full time, James, I know. They, they they don't understand. I'm a, for a single person with three children. Um, and the children, you know, that's fine. I try and feed them. We, it's, it's. We have one meal a day, James. They yeah. go without breakfast, and they choose to. I try and give them fruit, bananas in the morning. Yeah. Um, at school, um, you know, they all say, "Mom, I'm fine." But it's the guilt I live with. But I make sure I give them a meal. I make sure we're having a Can meal in the evening. Um, I I, th- but but I don't. I'll eat their leftovers, James. It's going to the point where I'm thinking, do I boil the water for the kettle and pop it into the bucket for cold water? And then I'll just give myself a wash. I will try and give my children, let them have their wash. But it's literally... I don't know I I'm just... Sorry, James. i apologise like They don't care, James. You know, at the end of the day, it's just me and my children. And... It, I've rang the page from I've told them about the single parent, of working full-time, they've told me, I have, you know, you're you better on working part-time, but James can't afford to not work, you know, I have to work full-time. It's just, you know, I don't, just, it's the system just doesn't work for people like me. It was
0: really, really difficult to listen to, and I mean, we've also got to remember the experiences that caller was describing. That was before this price hike came into effect. We're also expecting another one later in the year. Um, Aaron, can I get your sort of initial comments on the price hikes that we've seen this morning, their political impact, their human impact?
3: What we're seeing now is basically a repeat of what we saw after the global financial crisis with very, very sort of low pay increases. The problem is, and in a way it's amazing this didn't happen sooner, is you're getting runaway inflation. Now, after 2008, you you had this actually in 2008, you had food inflation, which was a precursor to the Arab Spring and, you know, bread riots in Egypt and so on. But actually, for most of the 2010s, we had really low inflation and you could sort of hammer people's living standards. And it was never that overwhelming, you know, because energy remained quite cheap, food remained quite cheap. Comparatively speaking, I know many, many people went without, but austerity would have been much tougher to deliver after 2010 if you had high inflation like you do now with energy with food and so on and this is terrifying to hear michael because i think this is really this woman and the way she's talking like you say i think for me it just embodies how big a crisis we're stepping into now and we'll talk about this throughout the rest of the show but if you know for instance there's cutting off of gas from from russia to germany and the rest of the eu you know you're going to see further price inflation for energy i think the obr data which is worse than where we are now which is meant to be the worst year in terms of living standards since the 1950s, I think that's actually quite optimistic. So this is terrifying. And quickly on James O'Brien, look, the next time a politician tries to offer solutions to help people like Zara, he'll call them unserious, racist, idiots, naive, bad people. So it's all very well and good seeing and hearing the cro- crocodile tears from the media. But for most pundits, and I hate to say this, I wish it wasn't true, as long as the house prices are going up in zones one and two, they don't care. They do not care. Or worse, they pretend to care, but they'll undermine anybody who tries to make a change.
0: We were talking about this the other day, Aaron, not on the show, but this question of how will this be similar to or differ to sort of 2010 and what we saw then? Because, you know, listening to that call, what you were seeing now is millions of people who are looking, you know, over the next 12 months and they are seeing that their quality of life is not only going to fall, it's going to become near impossible. And now this was similar to what we were hearing in, in 2010. And lots of people's lives were you know, fundamentally ruined by those government policies. I remember you saying to me earlier this week, though, that potentially the difference now is that people don't seem to be blaming themselves. Back in 2010, the Tories were very, very effective at saying, if you are struggling right now, that's your fault. Now that doesn't seem to be sort of the dominant narrative here. People are saying, I can't live like this. And this is a government problem. This isn't a personal one.
3: Fundamentally, the crisis of after two thousand eight was um, was a financial crisis, and then of course the government tries to deal with that through this sort of macroeconomic thing. So macroeconomics, what's that? We're talking about you know the ability of the state and how much money it's bringing in, how much it's spending, and they said, look, we've spent so much, we now need to tighten our belts. We now need to have austerity. We now need to constrain spending on social welfare programs, increase tuition fees, things like that. And I think that metaphor of a credit card really worked, and people thought, you know, well, we haven't got the money to run these programs anymore. I think macroeconomics is something which is quite difficult for people to understand. I think inflation is far easier to politicize, and I think people feel an obvious and immediate sense of injustice if the price of energy doubles overnight. And it's very difficult to mask that through rhetoric which people can't understand and obfuscate it through terms and so on from think tanks and from you know uh, from center-right and right-wing pundits so people who don't quite understand what's going on. People get inflation, right? They say, well, look, for 25 years, the price of this has been moderately stable, and now it's just doubled overnight. That's not normal. Somebody, somebody should be able to do something about it. And so, yes, I think we're in quite different terrain here, particularly on energy, but also food, right? Let's see, let's see what happens with food. I saw estimates last week saying that we should expect food inflation of 10% this year. So even if the basic rate of inflation is 8%, which doesn't include housing costs, by the way, food inflation will be higher. So for people like Zara, was it? um, Big problems. Big, big, big problems.
0: Let's go to another angle on this story. A sharp hike in energy prices has been an opportunity for many of the culprits behind the rise to demonstrate just how out of touch they are for the past few weeks. Martin Lewis has been advising people to send a meter reading to their energy supplier on March the 31st before the higher tariffs came into effect. But when that day came, many customers found the websites for their energy suppliers had crashed. This included Eon, who then tweeted, unfortunately, the website and phone lines of every supplier are being hammered today. Martin has once again created unprecedented demand, bringing down Britain. If you respond to our private message, providing the details requested, then we can assist you. Wow. So they're saying Martin Lewis, who advised consumers who were terrified about these 54% prices, put in a meter reading now, so you don't get charged more than you should for, for, for energy you used before March the 31st. They now say he's bringing down Britain. And some context here. Last November, E.ON announced that their nine-month adjusted earnings before interest and tax rose 46% to €3.93 billion, European-based company, of course. Also embarrassingly out of touch was Minister for Crime and Policing Kit Malthouse. He told LBC that he's feeling the pinch. You mentioned the meters.
4: What other economies or what else are you cutting back on in the Malthouse household, Minister? Well, obviously, the the day to day is quite uh, tricky, as you know. Nick, I've got children. Yes, um, and I do. They need to be fed, and that uh, cost is rising. Uh, my fuel prices are rising quite significantly, and I have to say, I'm on uh, in my constituency on oil uh, still, sadly, uh, central heating. And of you course- heat your house with oil. that? Must be exorbitant minister well of course oil i'm afraid to tell you doesn't come under the energy price cap either and lots of people in rural areas are are suffering from the oil price rise so we are feeling it very uh, significantly I have to confess to you we did convert last year to uh, electric vehicles um, right. so we're feeling the electric price but but not through the the petrol oh. so it is it's a challenge for everybody well no wonder you've got yeah. a log fire blazing behind you it's probably best uh, the best that you do it's to keep the house nice and warm I wonder log if I can fire. refer sorry go on Try, trying hard to, you know, I uh, I have to confess to you, I come from a, a background where the heating was religiously turned off on the first of April. Um, or, uh, um, unfortunately, today is very cold, so I have lit a fire to keep us warm.
0: For context, here, Kit Malthouse earns roughly hundred and fifty thousand pounds per year, just like that Rishi Sunak interview. Oh, I understand this because I've got children. Well, having children when you're on one hundred and fifty grand is a very different. Calculus than if you have children when you're on minimum wage or when you're relying on benefits. Aaron, if Kit Malthouse is struggling, what are the rest of us supposed to do?
3: First of all, he's not struggling, Michael. You know, if he's got a a roaring fire in the back, he's not struggling. And he said, you know, it's we're all in a similar situation. That's not quite true because if you're better off, it means you can afford to retrofit your home, right? Very high upfront costs, but of course you get those back and more over time. So you may introduce insulation, you may change your boiler, you may install you know, triple glazing, uh, solar panels. All of these things means it's expensive to be poor, right? And now what does that mean? It means if you've got the cash to pay for these things up front, you'll save money. If you don't, you'll spend more over the longer term. So it's one of those perverse realities of Tory Britain that actually it saves people money if they're well off, and spend that money retrofitting their homes while the poor can't even afford to turn on the heating in the first place.
0: I suppose what Kit Malthouse is trying to do there is say, I understand you. I understand you. I have these energy cuts as well. You know, when, when we're hurting you, we're also hurting ourselves. So don't think there's there any, anything malicious going on here. But I mean, everyone knows, don't they? Everyone knows that this guy is on a lot more than them when it comes to his, his salary. And that that means these cuts are going to be felt incredibly... Differently. Do you think anyone at all buys that, Aaron, what Kit Morthouse was saying there?
3: Oh, maybe, maybe Nick Ferrari. You know, maybe this, this weird loop which we call the British media where, you know, several thousand people just talk to themselves and think that's reality. Sure. But I, I really, I really suspect not. You know, people are staying warm by literally sitting in in sleeping bags. People are people are unable to put on the heating, literally. In very cold months like in february february is the coldest month of the year and, and and people i know people who weren't turning heating on and that's before like like you've already said it it it, it ticked up i wonder you know there are these repeated platitudes which are in circulation we're all on this together I, I just wonder how long it's going to last michael and going back to what we were saying before with macroeconomics with the austerity thing in a way it was kind of true right because we all use the same public services and everybody's child was going to have to pay more because of you know, university tuition fees. And you were saying, well, there's a, there'll be a progressive element to it because some people pay more and some people pay less and get different loans and so on. This is in, in no way progressive. This is like the poll tax. Inflation hits everybody the same. In fact, it hits the poorest hardest because proportionally they pay more on things like energy and food. And so it's just so immediate and so aggressive that I think if Tories think they can get away with the platitudes of, we're all in this together, it barely worked with austerity, but at least it made some sense. Here, on food and energy inflation, I mean, it's laughable. It's lamentable. Nick Ferrari is sort of chortling away, but I think, I think beyond the studios of central London, hard to see that really going down.
0: We'll go to our next story. Keir Starmer has been giving interviews about Labour's stance on the energy price hike, and a couple of clips have caused controversy online. The first was on BBC Breakfast... Would you make it illegal for, for someone's energy to be cut off? And I'm, I mean,
3: you'll clarify for me whether that's the case at the moment. What happens when the money runs out? Someone who has a disability, someone who's uh, in poverty, what oh. happens then? And would you yeah. seek some kind of government measure, an extreme measure, something we haven't seen before, to help those people? Well, firstly, isn't it shocking
1: we're even having this discussion? In 21st century Britain, after what 12 years of a, a, a Tory government, that we're talking about a situation where people might have their energy cut off because they simply can't afford. What would to you pay do to it? preclude that? The, the first thing I'd do is exactly what I've described, which is to enable those that most need it to have the 600 pounds on their towards their energy bills that they desperately need at the moment. That would mean that very few people would be in the position of not being able to pay for their energy. So you're putting to me, quite rightly understand it, a challenge, which is assuming the government is as pathetic as it is and doesn't do anything, we're going to have people in this awful position, what would we do? First answer is I wouldn't put them in that awful position in the first place. But the the fact that we're even talking about people having their energy cut off... My impression is you don't have an
3: answer for that question because what you've said is they shouldn't be in that position. I'm I'm giving you... There are people who will be watching this programme this morning who may well be thinking, by the end of this month, I genuinely don't think I can pay my bill. Then maybe in three months' time, yeah. or after October when the prices go up again. And you say they should be turning to government. I'm asking you, as the leader of the Labour yeah. Party, what is the end game? How can they be helped? I'm not looking well, backwards. I'm looking to what happens on that day. No, I'm not looking backwards either.
1: Um, I'm saying what we would do, first and foremost, is not put people in that position. You said that before. Well, I know, but it's very, very important. People are going to be in that awful position because the government is doing nothing. If the government tomorrow adopted our scheme and reduced uh, and and was able to use that windfall tax to to help people with their bills by £600, people wouldn't be put in that awful position. I, I think that is a very important answer to your question.
0: Later in a Sky interview, Starmer was asked if Labour's policies were radical enough. Starmer responded this.
1: What I want people to do is to look at the Labour Party and see a party that understands their worries, that takes them seriously and is prepared to put practical plans on the paper on the table people don't want a revolution they do want to know how am I going to pay my energy bill which has just gone up today by hundreds of pounds we're putting a practical plan on the paper uh, on the table that says for those that need it most um, you ask oil and gas companies who have made more profit than they were expecting to make because of the high global prices we say ask those companies to pay their fair share. And that would reduce those bills by £600. So when I'm talking to pensioners, I was in Stevenage last week talking to pensioners, they weren't saying, Kia, we want a revolution. They were saying, Kia, we're really worried about our bill. One of the pensioners said to me that they keep their heating on 12 degrees because they think if they put it higher than that, uh, they can't afford the bill. And this, you know, people having to make a choice between heating and eating. I mean, in 21st century Britain, What people want to know is, is the Labour Party, does it understand those worries? And the answer to that is, yes, we do. Have we got a practical solution to put on the table to reduce those bills by up to £600? Yes, we have.
0: Did I tell you I was in Stevenage last week talking to pensioners? Should I mention it again? Aaron, on a more serious front, I saw from your tweets today you were pretty annoyed at Starmer's answers there. Can you please explain why? I
3: mean, there's a lot to be uh, sort of ambivalent about, Michael. Even if you're a supporter of Starmer, which I think people should probably be aware of by now that I'm not, it's, it's not good. The presentation's not good. He comes across, particularly in the first interview, as a, a bullshit artist. He's not on top of his brief. He does this thing where you're a politician, and yet you, you talk like a pundit. Isn't it interesting that in 21st century, look, nobody gives a fuck about your punditry or your commentary. There are social problems confronting all of us. You're a politician. What are you going to do about them? Don't tell us what to think. Don't tell us, you know, oh, well, should, oh, I don't know, you know. isn't it remarkable? or Isn't it terrible? Look, let let other people do that. You're not a pundit. You're the leader of the opposition. You want to be the prime minister. And for all the criticisms thrown at Jeremy Corbyn, he never did this thing of, I'm a pundit. And maybe, hey, you know what? Maybe that was bad. Maybe he should have done things like comment on Chris Rock being slapped like Will Smith. But generally he stuck to policy because actually that's the stuff that's going to get us out of this mess. And that's the job of a politician. So I didn't like him sort of posing as the pundit. I don't think the policy substantively is very serious. I know there's some disagreement between us on this, Michael. I think you know, if your energy bill is just tripled or doubled and you're going to be paying thousands of pounds more over the course of a year, up to 600 pounds saving, it's something, but, but it's clearly massively inadequate, and that's just energy, right? And we're not talking about food. We're not talking about the minimum wage. You know, right now, as of today, the minimum wage is 950, Labor's saying it should be 10 pounds. The Tories are saying it'll be 10.50 by the next general election. Now, if Labour is saying it should be £10 this time next year, guess what? If inflation is, I think, even 6.5%, that means the real value of the minimum wage is falling. And it just shows that the Labour Party hasn't done proper hard thinking about pay, about public service, about bills. And instead we get stuff like, well, we don't want to have a revolution. Keir Starmer is still talking about Jeremy Corbyn, Michael. He's still, I don't care. I don't care. And I like Jeremy Corbyn. I don't care, but I think he really let the cat out of the bag by saying, "We, you know, the people of this country don't want a revolution because to the Westminster establishment, including Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, actually solving problems on a long-term basis for them now feels like a revolution. Because if you're not going to carry on with business as usual, with shareholder capitalism and privatization and outsourcing, anything different to that, even if it's like France." where, by the way, they're going to see energy prices go up 4% because the state owns a significant share of EDF, the energy company. Even something like France, the British political establishment, feels like a revolution. We can't have a revolution. Well, ergo, it means we can't solve any problems. Sorry. This year, we'll do this one-off thing where we'll save up to £600. Great. Well, hold on. My energy bills have just got, gone up two and a half grand, and food inflation is 10%. Okay, I'll save £600 on energy bills. And yes, of course, it's better than nothing. But people are looking at that in the context of what the government's doing. Let's look at it in the context of what the German government's doing or the French government's doing. This isn't a Labour party or a Labour leader serious about solving problems. That's what politicians are meant to do. Not give commentary about Chris Rock being slapped or
0: about whether OAPs and Kettering want a revolution. I think we agree neither of those were amazing performances. I think kind of where I differ is, I think you're being a little bit unfair when you say he was just offering commentary in that first interview, because to be honest, I thought him pushing back against the interviewer was kind of reasonable there because he was asked, what would you do about this? Would you um, stop people turning off people's electricity or gas um, if they can't pay? He said, we shouldn't even be having this conversation. And he's like, what's Labour's policy? To be fair, at, at at this point in time, bills are set to rise by £700. Labour have said, well, we'll give you £600. It's £100 off, but it's a lot better than what the Tories are offering. And I think, you know, if everyone was given £600 to pay their bills this year, it would be quite unlikely that many people needed, you know, that many people couldn't pay them. So I, I felt like that was pretty legit. I mean, also from an electoral perspective, they do want to get elected. There's no shame in that. I think having this simple policy that everyone can understand, there's going to be a windfall tax on the energy companies. That's where the money is going to come from. These are the bad That's guys. Great. It's going to go straight into your pocket to help you pay your bills right now you know, it's not a blueprint for the future, but it is a policy which you can say, which is uncontroversial. You keep the focus on the governing party because you're not, you know, you're not making the news about you. There's not going to be a big BBC explainer about how much will nationalization actually cost. Everyone's talking about these prices rising. Everyone's talking about people's struggles on the breadline and Labour have a policy, which is we're going to tax these rich guys to give you 600 pounds to cover nearly all of your bills, which is way, way better than the Conservatives. So for me, in terms of electoral positioning, it's not bad. And because basically it's sort of sitting on the fence, I don't see it as a particular betrayal in any way. Obviously, he promised some stuff in his 10 pledges, which he doesn't seem to be following through on now, but we've talked enough about that in the past, I think.
3: You're making so much sense, but then I disagree with a lot as well. So I agree, he doesn't need to say, we're going to nationalize everything. I agree with you. You don't need to say that. I agree with you. You can say, say the less you promise, the better. I agree with you. But what he's saying with those revolution comments, Michael, is he's actively moving the Overton window to his right. Why would you do that? Why would you? People don't, you don't need need to say that. Think of George Lakoff. Don't think of an elephant. What's the first thing you do? Think of an elephant. You don't do that. It's Political Communications 101. So I just find it's partly the presentation, Michael. So I agree with you actually on the substance of the policy. I don't think it's a terrible policy, right? I think you should do far more. And I think if that's all they're offering, it's pissing in the wind, frankly. But I think when you're actively trying to move any sort of political conversation away from the left. And obviously, the further left the public goes on this, the more that helps Labour. It doesn't help the Tories, right? If you're triangulating between, look, lots of people want public ownership and the right of the conversation wants basically you know, what we're doing right now, right? This £600 saving, then that's great for us. We can kind of sail that as the Overton window shifts left. We can make the most of that. That's clearly not his, his, his view of political change and political action. And I think the presentation is just terrible. I think he seems very evasive. And I think he seems like a bullshit artist. You're saying, oh, well, he he ans- oh, no, He didn't answer the question. Should people have their electricity cut off? Just say yes or no. Just That's all you have to do. And, and I, I, for me, he feels like the worst kind of personality type that you can have in this political moment, because he seems shifty, even when he's doing something, which I agree with you, the policy of uh, attacks on profits, windfall profits for big energy companies should be hugely popular. He's He's... He's overcompensating so much against the populist stuff that it doesn't seem authentic or credible. So I agree with you, Michael. Look, let's not go all out on this. I think some of the stuff on energy is good. I think there's zero on minimum wage, frankly. I think there's zero on a bunch of other stuff. It's okay. And also, I don't agree with you about, well, price are going to go up 700, this is 600. Those are old numbers, Michael. Those are absolutely old numbers. Believe me, if there is, which seems to now be the case, the issue between European Union countries and Russia with regards to exports of gas, where they're going to have to pay in rubles, and they refuse to do that. Austria and Germany have already triggered early warning mechanisms where they might end up rationing gas. If that happens, £700 is, is hugely, hugely, hugely optimistic. You know, the Centre for Economics and Business Research predicted half the levels of growth this year that the OBR did and 0% next year. And I think, actually, even that may, that may be over-optimistic. So, again, you've got a Labour Party and Keir Starmer not really adapting to, to the facts. Six months ago, this was a, was a very credible policy and a very credible response. I no longer think that's the
0: case. I mean, it is a regulated market, though. So prices will go up, but for the next six months, they're going to stay the same, right? It, it, it's going to get worse for people, is what I'm saying. But I, I don't really see why Keir Starmer, as leader of the opposition, remember he's not prime minister, why he can't be talking about what's going on right now instead of what's going to be going on in, in six months. Don't you think it's fair enough to say that in six months, he can sort of cross that bridge when he comes to it? If I'm a Labour Party strategist at this point, obviously I'm not because I'm not that committed to the project at this period in time, but all I'm thinking is we want people to be talking about the fact that their costs are rising. We want people to be blaming the Conservatives and we want people to think there is an alternative which probably doesn't have many downsides and that I'm not at all scared of. So he's saying, look, this is political. The reason you're struggling to pay your bills is because the Tories have had a pathetic policy offer. True. We would offer you something which is really significant, which would significantly, for the next six months, I agree, it doesn't work beyond that. But for the next six months, what this would do is make your energy bills manageable. And we're going to do it in a way which no one in their right mind could find scary, because all we're going to do is tax these people, we can point to them, that's where the money is coming from, it's going in your pockets instead. So if I'm a labor strategist, I'm like, job done. Obviously, if they're in government, you know, I'd want a long term solution, governments need to think in the long term. But as a opposition leader, where what you care about is how do people interpret their experience? Do they blame the government? Do they think there is an alternative? I think he's done a pretty decent job on on this front. Obviously, he'll have a challenge in six months when he's got to come up with a new policy. But for now, it seems to me a a reasonable holding position.
3: Again, I half agree with you, Michael, but he's operating within a certain set of political conditions, which he can also help shape over the longer term. And I think it's one thing, like you say, to be short-term, pragmatic, immediately sort of focused on this particular objective, yes. At the same time, why would you foreclose the opportunity for the public discussion to move further towards your terrain? It's like Tories saying, you know, we no longer think low taxes are good. They're always going to talk about that. And I think probably another area where we disagree, Michael, is the big difference right now between the Labour Party and the Tory party is the Tories are saying overtly, we're committed to low taxes. Now, by the way, they're not right now because taxes are going up, right? Even when they do lower taxes like national insurance in the end, people think they've increased them. You know, so they're getting their messaging very badly wrong. But they've said we want to reduce the basic rate before the next election from 20 to 19p. And one thing to remember with high inflation is, of course, that VAT tax receipts are much higher, right? So they have they have tens of billions of pounds in the chest now. I think their plan ahead of 2024, and let's see if they can get that far, because I think this year and next year is, is, is very difficult for them to actually navigate in terms of inflation. But the plan is to get there and offer big tax cuts ahead of 2024. And the Tories are a party saying, we favour the market. We want to be low tax. You get to keep more of your money. That's their brand. And they're going to tie every single policy area into that broader strategic message. What's Labour's? We're going to do a one-off windfall tax. Now, okay, short-term, I get it, Michael. What's the long-term story going into an election about how Labour govern and the the things they'll do for you? People think instinctively, I'm going to vote Tory because I want lower tax. Why are
0: you going to vote Labour? Well, I mean, they are going to have to answer that question, but in a way they're setting themselves up for it, right? Because what they're thinking, and I don't think it's completely unreasonable, is that the branding problem that the Labour Party have is that they say you can have nice things, but they don't really believe that you're going to be able to deliver it. So I I assume what they're thinking is for the next two years, what we're going to try and do is make ourselves seem almost, you know, in the way that it's easier for Tories to offer to spend money. When Tories offer to spend money, people are like, oh, sure. I mean, they're not going to bankrupt anyone. They're the Tories. So the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, wants to put himself forward as someone, I am someone you can trust with your money and to spend your money and put it in your pockets because I'm not someone who, when any problem comes around, I just say, oh, we'll spend X billion, we'll spend X billion, we'll spend X billion, which was the position that, you know, the Labour Party got into in 2019.
3: I only think that's, legitimate, that's a legitimate criticism for 2019. It's clearly not a legitimate criticism for 2017 because they saw a, a nine-point swing to them. It's clearly not a criticism for 2015 because Ed Miliband's manifesto was dog shit. It's clearly not a criticism for 2010, because apparently Gordon Brown was the Iron Chancellor, the most successful chancellor in the post-war era. It's the idea that all of a sudden the electorate thought he was a spendthrift. I think the argument against new Labour in 2010 is he looked bereft of confidence. There was a global financial crisis. They had been incumbents for 13 years. They weren't going to win. I buy that. So this idea that every time Labour says we're going to spend lots of money, people don't believe it. Yeah, it happened in 2019. By the way, that wasn't the reason people didn't vote Labour. People didn't vote Labour because of Brexit, because of anti-Semitism, because of the way that the media had portrayed Corbyn and so on. The idea that people were ready to vote Labour, but they said, "You know what? I just don't think they're going to come good on their policy commitments." Sorry, with regards to the money, I think that's the one election where you can say that, and even then, it wasn't this overwhelming variable. So I, I think that's not quite true, Michael. And look, we we had a politician who was who's providing these kinds of policy proposals. It was that Miliband in two thousand and fifteen. He got thirty percent of the popular vote. Right? You know, he got less than Jeremy Corbyn in two elections. So so let's see. But the idea that this kind of incremental way of doing things without carving out your broader strategy. I mean, Tony Blair certainly didn't do that. Tony Blair talked about a windfall tax, and it was very popular in 1997, but he did it alongside broader messaging around who he was, about transforming the country. We don't see that with Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer is actually trying to actively foreclose a conversation about transforming the country. He's like, I don't want to transform the country. But Blair didn't do that. So uh, look, I think you should. You know, We started this, you saying you're not a labor strategist. My God, Michael, if only you were.
0: Let's move on. Lots of ground covered there. We are going to talk about someone we're definitely going to agree about. Next story. Rishi Sunak this week appeared on BBC Newscast to talk about his disastrous spring statement. It was Laura Koonsberg's final appearance as the BBC's political editor, and she asked the Chancellor about people scrutinizing his wife's business interests.
3: Yeah, someone said, "You know, Joe Root, Will Smith, and me—not the best of weekends uh, for any of us." But on reflection, uh, both both Will Smith and me having our wives attacked. At least I didn't get up and uh, and slap anybody, which is good. Did you feel uh, like it? No. <laughs> um, you know, look, it, it's—I know what people are going through is tough, and and that that's tough. But in terms of me, and you know, is it is it been a hard week? You know, people being critical in the media that. That doesn't make it tough for me. And one of the things that did happen is people started asking questions about, you know, your family and about your wife. What, what, what was that like? I mean, she got dragged into it over her family's business interests. What did that make you feel? You know, it's I, I think it's totally fine for people to take uh, shots at me. It's fair game. I'm, I'm the one sitting here and that's what I signed up for. You know, it's actually, it, I, it's, it was ve- it's very upsetting and I think wrong for people to try and come at my
0: wife. Joe Root is England's cricket captain. They lost a test match last weekend. And you'll know Will Smith slapped Chris Rock after he made a joke about his wife at the Oscars. There is an obvious problem with the comparison Sunak made there, though. Jada Smith was mocked for a health condition, in her case, alopecia. Rishi Sunak's wife, Ashkarta Murphy, was scrutinised for having business interests in a country her husband was sanctioning. These things are in no way the same. They they are nothing to do with each other. And with complete predictability, Koonsberg didn't press him on this difference. He got away with it.
3: He came across as so lightweight, Michael. He came across as so lightweight. People talk about Potemkin village. I feel like in Britain we have Potemkin politics and Potemkin politicians. You know, you get exceptions like Nicholas Sturgeon or Boris Johnson. They're, they're quite robust political brands, and people have heard of them. And Sunak, Sunak people have heard of him because of furlough. But he, he does seem like a, a Potemkin politician. Now, what is that? What does it mean? Well, you know, the, the, the Hollywood westerns where all the, the facades of the buildings were just cardboard and there was nothing behind them. That's effectively a lot of politics in this country. And looking at that interview, I feel like that's the case with Rishi Sunak. I don't think he's got it in him to be a prime minister. I just don't. He, he seems really vacuous. Nothing driving him. No oomph. People love a bit of oomph. That's what people loved about Thatcher. That's what people loved about Blair. They love a bit of oomph. Well, they liked back Corbyn in 2017. The only time I rate Starmer is actually when he, I, I obviously dislike it. I disagree with it. But when he shafts people, you think people got a bit of oomph. They can do something. They're willing to get to the top. Sunak just seems like a bit of a, a sort of wet tea towel nothing to it. And I, I thought, if you look, if you can do the whole thing of like, don't bring my wife into it, at least lean into it a bit, you know, like if this was a woman, they wouldn't bring in a husband and people would call that sexist. Why is it any different than me? Do that. Play the whole, whole identity politics thing. The Tory base will love it. But he was just so half hearted in doing it. So he's not the Kendall Roy zesty millennial CEO. I can do this. I can reinvigorate Britain. He's not the identikit Tory. He's not a particularly interesting character. I don't quite know what his political brand is, Michael. I think, you know, when Rebecca Long-Bailey got the best of him in a climate debate ahead of the 2019 general election, I think more people should have paid attention to that because it showed how on top of things Rebecca Long-Bailey is and how actually weak Rishi Sunak is. And people mock the capacity of the Labour Party to produce technocrats who are economically literate. Well, Rebecca Long-Bailey looked a lot more serious than Rishi Sunak that night. And And I think that's probably because she is. And we did her a disservice. And I think a lot of people have overestimated Rishi Sunak for a bit too long.
0: Did you just say that Rishi Sunak isn't even as convincing as Kendall Roy? Is that the standards we're holding up to for him and he's, he's, no. still fa- he's still failing?
3: Look, everybody knows that the only capable millennial in succession, which everybody should watch, is is Chewie Husseini, played by Ariane Moyad. He's like the only capable millennial. He's the only one that will say to Brian Cox, Logan Roy, shut up, right? Kendall Roy is a bit of a he's a bit of a wimp, he's a bit of a loser, but he he does this kind of like I'm young, 45-year-old guy, you know, with a vision to, you know, take this company into the 21st century. I, I feel like Rishi Sunak is trying to kind of channel those vibes, but he can't even do that. You know, he's he's like an unconvincing Kendall Roy. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. What this country needs, Michael, is Stewie Husseini. We're not even getting Kendall Roy. We're in big trouble.
0: It's like Kendall Roy with sort of a bit a bit more self-doubt, like he won't even follow through on on what he's pretending to be. We discussed this on a a serious matter. we have discussed this before on the show. Even if you don't like a politician, I think going after their partner on some sort of personal ground, you know, are they having an affair? Who did they used to go out with? Do they have a problem with substances? You know, these are all things where you can legitimately say, that's pretty personal, and maybe you should back off. If they have investments in a country which you are sanctioning, and which you have called for all businesses to to divest from, and they're profiting from that, that does not fall in that category. Business interests are not the same as personal affairs, which there are arguments should be kept out of politics. But your investments definitely matter, and this is a a household. Her income is, by most common understandings, also Rishi Sunak's income. Her interests are his interests. So if she's invested in Russia, then you should have to answer for that, no? It does actually seem that there has been an update to this story. Ashkata Murphy has now, it seems, well, actually, no, this isn't a decision that she's made, but the, 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 the business that she was invested in, Infosys, has now um, decided to close its Russian branch. So it seems as if scrutinizing people potentially does work, which I suppose Rishi Sunak could have said. You know, Rishi Sunak could have said, we live in a democracy. It's not comfortable for me. I'd prefer it if people didn't talk about my wife's interests, but credit where it's due People made a fuss and now Infosys, a multi-billion dollar company, have divested from Russia. Exactly what I was asking businesses to do. You know, that should have been his response. Aaron, do you think I'm right? Do you think he could? I suppose he would only come out with that if he thought that Laura Koonsberg was going to be remotely tough with him. And he was just like, I can say whatever I want. And she's going to go, she's going to laugh. It's the last day anyway.
3: She's the worst journalist in Britain, Michael. Laura Koonsberg is, I mean, why, why bother? Like, why bother? You know, we might as well just get a monologue from Rishi. We might as well just see Rishi go on the Peloton and just sort of chat nonsense for 20 minutes. (laughs) There's there's no point. This interlocutor of of, of Laura Koonsberg is pointless. I know it's this big thing amongst British journalists. You have to say how great Laura Koonsberg is. Don't let the trolls get you down. She's terrible. There's a great video you guys put out early this week, actually, on Laura Koonsberg. I thought you really caught it, Michael. I thought the reason why people are sort of critical of her is because, because she does everything through Twitter. You see how the sausage is made and how actually her journalism consists of tweeting about WhatsApp messages she gets from Tory MPs. So yeah, perhaps not the best interviewer.
0: But she's, she's just been given an interview show, the, the, the BBC's sort of set-piece Sunday morning interview show. Final story. Prince Andrew is back in the headlines, not for associating with paedophiles and sex traffickers, nor for settling with his sexual assault accuser to the tune of £12 million. Instead, this time, the prince has found himself connected to a multi-million pound international fraud. The case concerns Nebahat Izbalin, a 77-year-old heiress and the wife of former deputy leader of Turkey's ruling AK party. Izbalin's husband was imprisoned in 2015 for allegedly attempting to organise a coup and fearing persecution, she wanted to move herself and her assets out of Turkey. Mrs. Izbalin was worth $90 million and to manage that cash, Izbalin enrolled this man. Selman Turk is a Goldman Sachs banker and was a family friend of Mrs. Isberlin. She said she trusted him, quote, completely, if not blindly, and she would give him almost total control of her financial affairs. However, it appears Mr. Turk abused his position, and Mrs. Isbellin is now pursuing him in the High Court for defrauding her to the tune of £40 million. Pounds. According to The Telegraph, court documents say Mrs Isbellin had poor English and was vulnerable to Mr Turk. And they write that by November 2019, Mr Turk and various companies and investment vehicles owned or connected to him had received tens of millions of pounds. Of course, this kind of financial dispute is not uncommon, but it's headline news because it appears a decent proportion of that misappropriated cash was funneled to one Prince Andrew. In court documents, Mrs. Isbelin's lawyers claim that in or around November 2019, Mr. Turk told Mrs. Isbelin that she needed to make a purported gift of £750,000 to His Royal Highness Duke of York by way of payment for assistance that he told her HRH, Duke of York, had provided in relation to Mrs. Isbelin's Turkish passport. It's not clear why this lady was led to believe Prince Andrew could help her acquire a Turkish passport passport she had left hers in Turkey when she fled, or whether Prince Andrew was aware such an impression had been given. But nonetheless, that sum was transferred to the Duke, and a further £350,000 would be paid to Andrew in regular instalments from another firm linked to Mr Turk. So far, so embarrassing. The next question, though, is why Selam Turk might have wanted to funnel someone else's cash to Prince Andrew. On this front, the timing of the transfer is interesting. That's because nine days before it was made, Prince Andrew hosted his own version of the BBC's reality show, Dragon's Den. And according to The Telegraph, his event called Pitch at Palace involved entrepreneurs presenting rapid fire pitches lasting no more than three minutes to a room at St. James's Palace filled with CEOs, influencers, angels, mentors, and business partners. The winner of the night's prestigious People's Choice Award was a digital banking company called Heyman AI. Its chief executive and founder is Salman Turk. So did Prince Andrew really give a People's Choice Award to someone just because, or just so, they would give him 750 grand a week or so later? Well, we don't know the answer to that question. And apparently Prince Andrew didn't get a vote. But Mrs. Isberlin seems suspicious that the two events are connected, court documents say. Mrs. Isbellin's evidence is that she was told the payment was to be made in connection with immigration documents. In fact, Mr. Turk appeared at a charity event hosted by Prince Andrew at St. James's Palace on the 5th of November 2019, at which he sought to promote his UK banking business. Mrs. Isberlin suspects that the payment was made for some purpose connected with the banking business. Aaron, there's obviously no suggestion Prince Andrew knew he was involved in a sort of alleged international fraud scandal. But receiving 750 grand from someone after you've given them your own people's choice award seems a little suspicious, doesn't it?
3: We've probably established that Prince Andrew doesn't have the, the best judgment when it, when it comes to his personal decision making. Um, and, and that's being charitable. But I, I do wonder now, now that these stories are coming, these stories are clearly coming out because it's okay to take pot shots at Prince Andrew, right? There was, it was verboten in much the, the British media to really, to really dig when it came to the royal household. That's now gone. I think we're going to see a lot more stories like this, Mike.
0: We are going to talk a bit more about this event because it is very tragic. Of it, the Telegraph, right? Pitch at Palace, established in the UK six years earlier as a not-for-profit company, was the brainchild of the Duke of York, dreamed up after his coveted role as a trade envoy was terminated in 2011 over his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted child sex offender. Pitch at Palace's mission was to hunt out burgeoning startups and help them find investment and grow the business. And it just so happens that the video of the event in which suspected fraudster Selman Turk appeared is still online. Let's take a look.
4: At Heyman AI, By using today's technology, we make banking much simpler. In order to achieve this, we hired 60 people who believe that we can create next people's champion. Those include C-level executives from HSBC to Bank of England. Then we took current banking products and recreated them to meet the expectations of the new age. By putting customer at the heart of the product, then, and now we are creating our technology platform, our banking platform from
2: scratch.
5: Right, the People's Choice Award um, um, was won by uh, Heyman AI by some margin. They've done a really good job. So well done, Heyman AI for that. Congratulations uh, to all of you for for what you have uh, achieved. So uh, uh, congratulations. Now, um, before we do another set of photographs, because they're waiting for for, for you guys, um, just to say to you that that, uh, our next event um, will be the global event, which is held on the 11th of December. Um, But our next pitch, um, by unanimous decision of the partners and board of directors, will be pitch 13. (laughs) There is no such thing as leaving a number out. Um, And so Pitch 13 will take place um, at some stage um, uh, towards the uh, end of spring uh, next year. But thank you all very much indeed for coming this evening. Uh, You can all go through the door that way, all go that way and around uh, and meet up in, in there because there's lots of drinks and time to connect now with the entrepreneurs. And they've all got these things with them. So um, if, you, if they hold them up, you can find them. That's the theory so, still. Congratulations. Well done. Well done. Congratulations. Well done. Move over this way a little bit. Right.
0: Sadly, pitch at Palace 13 would never take place, as a week after the event we just showed you, Prince Andrew did the disastrous Emily Maitlis interview that ended his career. I did wonder about showing that clip because you had to watch that guy do that sort of 50-second pitch about his weird company. He'd employed 60 people to work out how you can change your bank account quicker. I presume it's not going to happen. Um, but I did enjoy it just because of how, you know, they sort of like rich, wealthy people with too much time on their hands, you know, yeah. spend their time. It's so expensive just to keep that guy occupied. You know, he wants a pet project because him hanging out with a convicted pedophile means that he can't be, UK trade envoy anymore. And so all of this money has to go into putting on this ridiculous event where you've got these people with these horns that, that says the time is up after you've given your pitch. And then someone's got to pay for all these long drinks that they drink afterwards. Just like you've got to entertain these people like they're sort of children in a playground, but you have to do it through their whole life, you know, however badly they have behaved in the past. And they call it public service.
3: <laughs> they, call it, they call it personal sacrifice. There's a microcosm of this. You know, I went to see uh, the Lord Mayor being invested where I live, and they talked about the previous one, and I think they have an expense of like 80, 100 grand a year. It's a lot of money. They get a nice jag or whatever, and they, you know, it's about public service. You know. And you know how much they raised over the previous 12 months in this sort of ceremonial role? About 900 quid, right? It's so the only you know, charitable causes. It's like, hey, just lost 90 grand. And this, this person's been doing nothing and cutting ribbons, but it's public, public service. This is kind of the royals. Now, okay, imagine that, times it by 20,000 and and have it running since, you know, well, the modern monarchy, you'd say, for a hundred and, let's say, since Victoria. Yeah, for 130, 40 years, mid-Victorian era, certainly for the whole of the 20th century. And yeah, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, it's just farcical. I can't wait for the Netflix series on Andrew, A Life. You know, I think that is going to be the biggest net. Imagine The Crown and The Tinder Swindler put together... (laughs) <laughs> and that's what you're going to get with the Netflix biopic on, on Andrew. I hope there's as many series as humanly possible. I hope they don't do that Netflix of just doing the two series and then cutting it. I don't think it
0: would. I mean, can you imagine? It'd be a blockbuster, Michael. Uh, question for you. Who would play Prince Andrew? Yeah, I think like a, maybe an older Kendall Roy, if it takes a while for them to get it out because they've got to pay too much for, for the lawyer's fees. It probably will take a while to get that one past the lawyers. What's he called? What's the actor? Jeremy Strong. Jeremy Strong, Yeah.
3: But I think I said Prince Philip at one point. I mean, Prince Andrew. I mean, I don't, we don't want to buy, buy out Prince Philip. Although I have to say, when he died and there was the funeral, and the day of the funeral, they, there was like this BBC two-hour-long documentary about what a wonderful man he was. And I was like just watching it on the sofa all day, and my wife came back, and I said, you know, he wasn't all bad. And she said, Aaron, what the hell has happened to you? <laughs> you know, the BBC have got direct into your brain. Was like, he was a complicated figure, you know. But I don't think that's going to be the treatment given to Prince Andrew somehow.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, that'd be so, oh, so interesting. Can't wait for that one. Not that I'd wish death upon anyone. Aaron, a pleasure spending my Friday evening with you as always. My pleasure, Michael. I, I can see it now, Ash Sarka being
3: the lead scriptwriter for the Netflix series on Andrew in five years' time. Looking forward to it.
0: Me too. Um, thank you all for watching this evening. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. Have a fantastic weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.